A pastor is doing his regular visits in the county jail. And he walks up to this man, a young man. And before he even reaches the man, he says, Leave me alone, pastor. I'm no good. Everything I touch turns to hell. Every person I love, I hurt. There's no hope for me, pastor. Just move on. Don't stop and talk to me. The pastor paused for a second with silence. And he said, yeah, the hurt you've inflicted on others is devastating, serious. They might never heal. But what you need to do, son, is you need to find a new compass, a true north point to point to, a new way of life. He said, we need to teach you some new stories. Stories? I don't want to hear stories. Don't you know that I'm desperate and I'm hopeless and I'm, I'm suicidal and I don't want to live anymore? Stories? Your idle stories aren't going to get me anything. I need facts, not fiction. You're talking about this happy ending, this uh, place of restoration. I need facts, not fiction. After the man calmed down, the old pastor said, humor me. Let me just tell you one story. The man agreed. Here's the story. A very bad man died one day. And he went to the judgment throne of God. And he stood before the likes of Abraham, David, Peter, and Luke. And he's in this place of judgment. It's chilly and it's quiet. And out of nowhere, an unseen voice speaks. And it starts to list the wicked things that this man had done. Over and over the details of life that was just wicked and horrible. And after the recording of all of his wrongs was done, the voice stopped. And Abraham, the father of nations, says, Sir, you aren't welcome here anymore into the kingdom of heaven. You must leave. Father Abraham, the man said, I do not defend myself, but I have no, no choice but to ask for mercy. To ask for mercy. Certainly you understand that. You lied to save your own life, saying to uh, your wife, act like you're my sister. And because of that, you receive the grace and mercy of God. That's what I'm asking for, he said. King David interrupts. Abraham has spoken correctly. You are co you've committed evil and heinous crimes against humanity, against your family. You don't belong in the kingdom of light. You don't belong in heaven. The man faced the great king and he said, Son of Jesse, it is true what you say. I am a wicked man, yet I dare ask you for forgiveness? Aren't you the one who slept with Uriah's husband? Uriah's wife, sorry. <laughs> it's 2020, things are getting different nowadays. <laughs> Focus, dude. Uriah's wife, and you've covered up your sin with an arranged death. He goes, I just want the forgiveness that you ask God about. 
And then Peter speaks and he says, unlike David, you have shown no love for God. Your words and your acid tongue and your temper have defiled the son of God. He goes, I should be silent because the only way I use his name is in vain and in anger. But he says, still, Simon, son of Jonah, I plead for grace like you did. Didn't you walk with him by his side listening to the very words of Jesus? Weren't you the one that was in the garden that couldn't stay awake? And on that final night when he needed you the most, you denied him three times. Isn't that you? Can I have that same grace that you received? And then Luke spoke and said, you must leave here now. You're unworthy of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the man bowed his head very low. And instantly a light shone upon his face. Instantly there was this light that was transcendent. And he said, my life has been recorded correctly. I am guilty as charged. Everything you said was true. Yet I know there's a place in heaven for me. Abraham and David and Peter will plead my cause because they know the weakness of man and they also know the mercy and grace of God. But you, blessed physician, you will open up the gates because the kingdom of heaven is for guys like me. It's exactly what it's for. Don't you recognize me, Luke? Don't you recognize who I am? I'm the one that the good shepherd brought in on his shoulders. I'm the younger prodigal son that came back. And instantly the gates of heaven opened. And Luke embraced the sinner. And the pastor says, you see, son, you need to learn these stories. It's not an exercise of fiction, but it's understanding the facts of the grace and mercy of God. And that can transform your life. God's stories will help you find your way and find a, a way of life that will restore you back to the way that you were meant to be for God. That's called illogical love. And that's our series today. We continue on going through the book of Hosea in certain sections trying to understand this illogical love. The book of Hosea is the second greatest story of love ever told in the Bible. The first one would be a lot of confident people. Anybody? Glad you're here because we're going to explain that. Jesus is the first love story. We're grateful that you're here. A lot of Jesus, I think. That's like a, I used to teach, uh, I used to teach youth ministry and the answer to everything is Jesus. I think it's Jesus. That's Jesus. You guys aren't even that confident. That's terrible. <laughs> this is a love story. It's a second greatest love story in chapter three. The one that we're going to dig into is a powerful love story. And I, I, we're going to title it Unjustifiable Grace. And we'll unpack that word in just a second. Unjustifiable Grace. That's kind of where we're going to go. But here's the thing. I believe, and I know many in this room believe, and I could feel the Spirit of God kind of challenge right now, that the Word of God is life transforming. If you believe that, will you stand up? If you don't believe it, stand up because we're going to read anyways. But I just want to... <laughs> At our church, we believe that the Word of God is powerful. 
and it transforms lives. And the only reason why I know that is because I didn't read it, and once I read it, I was found, and I had a new life, and I had a transform transformation because I started to hear what God had to say, and it changed me from the inside out. This is our memory verse. Four weeks, we have this memory verse, and we use it to kind of launch the message. And really, the reason why I do it, this is kind of a Jeremy Case thing. He gets up and reads from it. I just want the Holy Spirit to start working right now. So let's read this and see what it says. This verse is, Hosea's got 14 verses. This is the very last book, verse of the book. And you see God's character and you see human nature in this last kind of place. And this is a place of poetry. It says, let those who are wise understand these things. Let those who are wise, wisdom comes from above, comes from God, understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. Discernment is a gift from God. It's everybody who believes should have a little bit of discernment, but it's a gift from God. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and the righteous people live by walking in them. And that's what the pastor was trying to communicate to that man in jail. The paths of the righteous are true and walk are right with God. And he wanted that man to walk in that place with him. And then it says, but in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. And that's the end of the book. Listen, I can read the Bible and I can stand up here and preach. But it doesn't protect me from sin if I'm not walking right with God and living right on that right path. And having people around me, my wife and my friends and some of you, not all of you, but some of you, to keep me right. Let's pray. Father, we claim you as our victor. Lord, you are our overcomer. You are a redeemer. Father, we claim you and we ask that your spirit as it descends upon us into our heart right now, Lord, that you will use this moment of time to speak to us. Use me and open up our hearts so that we can hear from you today, Father. We love you, King Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Go ahead and be seated. Hosea is a prophet, and he's one, of the, uh, he's one of the three types of prophet in the Bible. Let me give you a quick explanation of the three types. The first type of prophet is a foretelling prophet. That is telling the future. One of the great foretelling prophets is Daniel. At the end of Daniel, he writes some future stuff that you see in Revelation. I was always taught that you need to read Daniel before Revelation, and there's kind of like a key code, or the two work together so that you can truly see how God works and what Revelation means. So you got to go to an Old Testament book, Daniel, to do that. Daniel was a foretelling prophet. There's another one called foretelling that's got the TH on the end. Foretelling, that type of prophet is like Elijah. Elijah was one of maybe the greatest prophet in the Bible. And what he would do is say, hey, this is what God is saying and doing right here, right now. And he was communicating to Ahab and Jezebel and things would happen instantaneously. And he was just like, this is what God is saying and doing. And he was foretelling what was going to happen. And that's why he was one of the great prophets. And then you come across Hosea who foretold he just lived out practiced what he preached and also you're going to see he had some future stuff so he kind of two for one he did the foretelling and the foretelling and it and it kind of works together and god challenged him like a few others to do crazy things and live their life right before the eyes of others and share that 
Hosea, the name actually means he saves or salvation, or if you another translation would say deliverance. So that's what the word means, and it's really a good symbol of who Jesus is. If this is the second greatest story, he saves is what Hosea means, and that's an awesome thing. Um, this time period, uh, Hosea was actually called by God to speak to the, to, to the northern part of Israel. That's his job. It's like God said, you're going to be my prophet, and I need you to speak forth my truth about what I'm trying to tell the community and the, the, the group of Israelites in the northern part of Israel. There's been a divide, and there, there's two different sections now. There was a king named Jeroboam II. He was an evil king, maybe the worst king in all of the, uh, all of the kings leading Israel. And he was leading them down a path of destruction, a path of chaos and confusion. And I want to put a timeline up just so you kind of understand where we're at in the Bible, just so you can see what's going on. You can see at the very top, we're just a couple hundred years away from the first king, Saul. Then you see David, and then you see when the temple's built with Solomon. And then you see a little bit farther, 722 is when the Assyrians come in and crush the Israelites. That's at the end of Hosea's life. And then you see a little bit later, this second temple period, and, and you see this rebirthing of the temple. And that's kind of just where we're at. You see, we're right in the middle of some great history of Israel. Um, several years ago, when Journey kind of first started, when we first came to the community center, we used to do these theological classes, and we would train some, we would teach some, some deep theological things, and one of the things that Jeremy taught us in one of the classes was this acronym ABC, and that's kind of how you see the destruction of Israel. Assyrian, Babylonian, and Cyrus. Those are kind of the ABCs. That's how Jerusalem kind of is in that fall. So ABC, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Cyrus. It's been a good acronym. I've never forgot it, uh, and uh, that's pretty good to understand. We're going through, this is week three, and we're going through the third chapter. We're not really going verse by verse. We're just trying to find some stories about illogical love to communicate that to the church. And here's kind of the, the three weeks that we're gonna, what we talked about. Jeremy, the first week, talked about marriage. And then last week, we talked about adultery. And then this week, we're going to talk about restoration, illogical love, unjustifiable grace. That's what we're trying to understand. In the beginning, Jeremy talked about Hosea being, uh, being told by God to go and marry a prostitute. And this woman was to be his wife. Now, in between that, it looks like she had some uh, adulterous affairs because some of the kids' names, one was Jezreel, God planted, but one was, I'm not loved, and the other one was, not my people, and Sounds like something happened outside of marriage. And so that's kind of what Jeremy communicated. But at the end, uh, he said it's not over yet. And then last week at the beginning of chapter 2, God starts calling out the sin of this woman. But really it was the sin of Israel. And we talked about as the church, the church has put things before God. And it's the sin of all humanity that could be something that is symbolism there. And then the message last week was really about God responding through promises and covenants. Do you realize that God is responding to you? If you woke up and said a prayer or asked God for something, he's responding. But if you're not hearing, it's because you've got something in your life that's blocking or multiple things that are distracting your connection with God. He's responding. And one of the ways that I hear God, that I can know that if I do this, that God will speak is I open up his word and I spend some time in devotion. 
Because through there, I know this is his word and this is how he can use a form to speak. So that's one of the things that we see. Last week, God's promises was that he wanted to pursue you and grow you into this relationship. Let me ask some rhetorical questions. And what I mean by that is I'm not really going to address them, but I think they need to be said today so that you can get your mind going about what God wants to speak to us today. Here's the first question. How do you respond normally? Everybody say normally. It's really awkward for a church that's abnormal, but that's a tough word for us to say. How do you respond normally when someone hurts you? And what I mean by that is not the Christian, the way that you're going to explain it Christian-wise. Oh, here, brother, this is how I'm going to give grace and mercy from the glory of God. Right. How do you respond normally when someone hurts you? And the better question is, how do you respond to that person when it's over and over and over again and it's the same hurt and the same sin? How do you respond to that? Here's probably the better question. How does God respond when people hurt him over and over and over again? When you hurt him over and over and over again, how does he respond? What does God's heart look like and what does your heart look like? And the reason why we ask that question, if they're not the same, there's got to be a, 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 we've got to get rid of that separation and start growing closer to his heart. And this message and this text helps us understand that today. So today we're going to read in Hosea chapter 3. There's only five verses, so we're going to talk about it. And it's titled Unjustifiable Grace. What does that mean, unjustifiable? It's some goofy pastor's word that we, I looked for four hours for that word, by the way. So can I get a round of applause for that word? You don't even know what it means. It could be something stupid. So you don't even know. You shouldn't be applauding there. Just because I'm begging for that, that's terrible. Here's what it says about unjustifiable. Not able to be shown to be right or reasonable. And grace is, we've all heard it, free, unmerited favor of God. Unjustifiable. This man that we talked about that died, who was wicked and evil and had a list of horrific things that he did. At one point, he said a prayer and he was accepted into heaven, even though his whole life was a disaster. And it harmed and hurt people. That's unjustifiable. There's a moment where Jesus teaches about this in Matthew 20, and it's the vineyard story. You guys know the vineyard story? Sending workers in the field. Jesus comes in, and he, he tells this story about this parable. Uh, this guy goes out and says, I'll pay a full day's wage to go work in the vineyard. And then at 9 o'clock again, 12 o'clock again, he sends these people in and says, I'll give you a full day's wage. Finally, 3 o'clock, and then 5 o'clock. And when he starts to pay them out, the first guy that's been there for an hour gets a full day's wage, and the last guy's like, oh, cool, I'm going to get at least double because I worked my butt off. But at the end, they all got the same wage. That's unjustifiable grace. How does that make sense? And the guy says, who are you to tell me how do I spend my money? Who are you telling me how do I bless people? To the world, that looks stupid, but to Christians, we're like, oh, man, that's gold. Because I can do whatever I want in a negative way, but I still have a chance. But don't, don't think that that means a lot because you might not make it through the day. And you might need to get right with God right here today as we speak. Verse 1 says this, then the Lord said to me, go and love. Let's stop there for a second. Everybody say go and love. Go and love. That's the mission. 
You want to talk about illogical love? Go and love. And he's going to help us understand this unjustifiable grace. But this is the mission of the church. Our call is many years ago when me and Madison and Liz and Jeremy and, and a few other people, Dustin and whoever was around. Oh, Dustin wasn't around. But people were around and we kind of said, we're going to go out and make this a love offering to the community. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. Go and love. Today we're going to see God wants to love us through reclaiming, redeeming, renewing, and restoring. Those are in your notes. We'll talk about those each one. So here's what it says. Go and love your wife. And this should be highlighted and circled because this word says a lot. It's said again. Everybody say again. That's a heavy word. There's a reason he doesn't love her now. And it's because of her actions outside of the home. And now he's got to find some strength to go out and love her again. Dad, you're not going to bring her back to the house again, are you? Dad, I'm getting bullied because of my, by my friends because mom's out with all kinds of guys. Did you see what she was doing last Friday night? God said to go and love her again. Even though she commits adultery, this, the verse continues, with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Go and love by reclaiming her. That's the first act. He is going to reclaim her. Go and love again. Now, here's the thing. If we're doing a Bible study, which we're not, but if you were in here and you were looking at it, you would circle the word again because it has a lot of weight. You got to understand what does that mean? And then you got to look at the things that repeat in this text. And what repeats in the text is the word love four times. And so there's something that we need to talk about. So let's talk about those types of love. There's two, two, two words love that are the same type of love. He lo Go love your wife as, as the Lord still loves Israel. Those are the same exact word. And it's this pursuing type of love that we're talking about here. The type of love that we're talking about is pursuing. It's not this fondness or attractiveness. Even though Hose, uh, Gomer might be beautiful and she might have a beautiful figure, she's not attractive by the way she's living her life. It's repulsive to him. So it's not this attractive or fondless love. It's a love that I've got to go reclaim her. I've got to go pursue her like God pursues his children. If you're here today, God is pursuing you. And some of you are distant. But he says, I'm not going to let that hold me back. Some of you are unattractive in the way that you're living your life. But he is still going to pursue you. Just like he challenges Hosea to pursue Gomer. This is an active reclaiming love, just like God reclaims his children. The other two are interesting. The other one is a lover. He goes, as she commits adultery with another lover. This is that erotic sexual love. And if you're married, this is the, the better part of it. It kind of enhances your marriage and makes it right. But if you're not, this is the where people stumble and fall. This is where sin, sin comes in. This is where adultery comes in. This is that lustful love that's not healthy if it's outside of marriage and outside of your relationship. And then the last one, it says, is a love of raisin cakes. What? 
my text doesn't even say that. I read the NLT, and I was going to say this. I read the NLT for two reasons. Number one is it really kind of breaks down some of the big Greek and Hebrew words in the text and kind of spells it out. Second, I'm dyslexic, and so it's easy for me to read. And I actually, my wife told me to show this. I'm actually using this new tool for dyslexia to help me read a little bit better. So if it works, give her a hand. If not, blame her. So... Uh, I was as nice as I can do. Happy Valentine's, babe. I love you. <laughs> but in the text, it says love of raisin cake. Well, what does that mean? The raisin cake, if you look at the Hebrew, it's talking about dried grapes, maybe wine or grapes in itself. And these raisin cakes were a form of worship to Baal or Baal. And it was something, maybe a party favor that they would have before they went in. Maybe it was a drink that they have to kind of get ready for the temple worship that was going to happen. And generally that led to sexual prostitution. And so like, these cakes, we love these cakes. So for me, it's like, I love tacos. Can I get an amen? amen? I already got four texts from first service sending me pictures of tacos for lunch. <laughs> but that's what they're talking about. It's not this real love like I've got this hesed or agape love for tacos. That's ridiculous. It's this love for something that really doesn't mean that much, but we have an affinity to it. And that's what we see here. What is Jeremiah write, one of the prophets, about people with little gods getting in the way of the one true God? What is Jeremiah write? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what it says. Has any nation ever traded its gods, little g, for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Christians and Israelites, we do it all the time. I'm going to be at Starbucks in a few minutes after the service. Little g God. Don't have money for it, but I'm going to do it anyways. Here's what it says. Yet my people exchange their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. We've shut off ourselves from the living water of God and we've abandoned ourselves because of that. And they have dug themselves cracked cisterns that can't hold water. They're building cisterns with raisin cakes, thinking that that's going to hold the living water of God. But they're false gods, they're false love, and it's not really going to help them at all. You love raisin cakes over God? It's a little awkward. It's a little illogical. And we need to get right with God because of that. So now we see in verse 2, Hosea speak. Then he says, so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. The second word is I will go and love by redeeming her. Now let me kind of help you imagine this. I'm married. And me and my wife aren't living in the same house. And I'm going to go back and rekindle my marriage and I'm going to go and love her again. And I'm going to bring her back. This isn't happening. We're living in the same place. We share this huge bed and we struggle trying to stay in that bed. But this is, I'm just telling you a, a scenario. So I've got to go and get my wife at a different place. And I've got to bring her back to the house. And the kids are like, Dad, don't do it. But now i got to pay? i got to go to the person that's got my wife and now I've got to pay? It's one thing to have to go through and go, okay, Liz, let's talk and get through this so that we can start building our relationship back and go through that wrenching work. But now I've also got to physically pay? It makes no sense. 
This is redeeming love that we see here. And let me kind of put this in the, in, in the, in the uh, context. She's probably a slave uh, at the temple and down the street, and it's this Baal or Baal uh, worshiping place. She's probably a temple prostitute, and she probably has to be bought back by a pimp or someone that's leading the temple prostitute. And he's just not going to give her up for no money. She's a good moneymaker for the, for the kingdom of Baal. So why would I get rid of her? She's more valuable to me. So here's kind of my scenario. It's not necessarily biblical, so just know this is how my head thinks. He goes to the bank and he says, give me all my money. And he's like, here's 15 silver shekels. And he goes to the guy that he's trying to buy back his wife and he goes, here's 15 silver shekels. And he's like, that's not enough. You need more. He runs home and he starts taking all of the food, all of the barley out of the cupboard, everything that he has. And then he's like, I got this, and I got a full thing of wine in a wineskin. And it's worth about 15 shekels. And I'm going to run back. And the kids are like, Dad, you're not going to give all of our money and our food to buy her back, are you? But God said to redeem her and to reclaim her. So I am. So he goes back to buy her back, and he's given everything that they have. This whole family now has nothing, but they're bringing back this woman that destroyed and has made their life a disaster. That's the type of love that God has for us, a reclaiming love. In Exodus chapter 21, it talks about the price of a slave being 30 shekels. She was in slavery to sin and in slavery to the temple prostitution ring that was going on into Baal or Baal. And she needs to be bought back at 30 pieces. In Matthew chapter 26, do you realize how much Jesus was bought for? 30 pieces of silver. A slave. He bought us as slavery to sin and put that on the cross. When he died, we were free from slavery of sin. The apostle Peter writes at the end of the Bible, he writes in 1 Peter, he says, For you know that God has paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold and silver, which lose their value. Listen, he's not paying you back with gold and silver, but in our era, in 2020, gold and silver are doing pretty well. A couple hundred dollars an ounce for silver, you know, almost two grand for gold. It's a good investment. But we're not getting bought back by that. Here's what it says. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as a ransom long before the world began. That's called eternity past. Long before the world began, and here's the beautiful part. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Now in these last days, Christians and non-Christians alike, the church and the unchurched alike, are now to see that Jesus redeems all who believe in him. Do you realize what was said? We paid nothing. You and I as Christians have paid nothing for what God has given us. God has given us eternal love. You, nothing. God has given the love of his son. You have paid nothing. God has given us this Holy Spirit. What have you paid? Nothing. Do you deserve what you get? You've got this amazing grace given to you. And you've paid nothing. And how do you treat it? 
You've got this faith that's bestowed upon us from God through his son. And how do you live with that? You've got the peace that transcends all understanding. What do you do with that? You've paid nothing. I've paid nothing for what I've gotten. And I've gotten so much. And at the end, even though I paid nothing, I get eternal rest with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. It's astonishing to think about what was just said. I have paid nothing, but I've received so much. What we deserve versus what we receive is almost uh, uh, mind-boggling. It's unmeasurable. What I deserve versus what I've received. Man, nothing and look at what I've gotten it might not be perfect but I was going to say damn good but you don't say those kind of words in church so (laughs) it's good everybody say it's good it's good no matter what you've gotten no matter where you're at it is better than any day on the sinner side of life Richard Baxter, he was one of the guys during the, the reformist era from the Catholic and the Protestants. He was one of the Protestant people, but he was the peacemaker. He was known as a, this theologian that always wanted to have peace with the Catholics and the Protestants. And he writes this stuff about this text here. He said, oh, how free was all of this love and how free is this enjoyed glory. So then, let deserve be written on the floor of hell, but free gift on the door of heaven and eternal life. What we deserve is separation and eternal damnation. What we deserve is never to be in front of God because he can't be around sin. But what we received is everything. He gave everything so that you and I can be right with him and we squander it throughout the week and throughout the month and throughout the year. For how many more years are we going to do this until we get right with God? You know what? I'm going to do something I, I don't normally do. I still got some message to go, but I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do something with salvation right now. I believe someone in this room or someone watching or someone that's going to be listening to the podcast this week needs to hear the gospel message that Jesus died for your sins and you paid nothing but you received everything in him. But here's the thing, if you've been a Christian for more than six months, six days, 60 years, when we come to a salvation message, what are you doing? You need to be interceding for that lost person in your family or to the unchurched person at Alpha Beta. Is there Alpha Beta anymore? Man, I'm old. So here's the thing, when we do a gospel message, which we do it every Sunday, you need to pray for that unchurched person. We are on a mission at this church to bring in thousands of unchurched people over the next five years. Because the church needs the unchurched and we will benefit from growing because the unchurched will challenge us as a ministry. And it will make us better. So I'm going to pray for salvation right now. But if you are saved, pray for that person in this room or watching or someone that you know. And all you have to do if you're here today and you feel like God is speaking and tugging on your heart and you want to be restored and redeemed and loved, you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you shall be saved. And you repeat this prayer. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart. Come into my soul. And be my Savior. 
You died and you rose again for me and my personal eternal life with you. I don't deserve it, Lord, but I thank you for it. Anoint me with your Holy Spirit right now and teach me how to walk the righteous and true path that you challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 3 says, Then she said, Then he said to her, You must live in my house for many days and stop prostitution. During this time, you will have no sexual relationship with anyone, not even me. The third word is go in love and renew. How do we renew? Here, we're in this awkward place because now he's brought her back into the home. He's given her everything. He's reclaimed her. The kids aren't happy, honestly. Let's be honest. The kids are not happy. And now he has this one-on-one conversation. It's like, you can stay in this house. You're going to live in this house. There's going to be no sexual activity because you need to be renewed and right with God. There's a lesson here for us on how to get right with God. This is that betrothal time we talked about last week. It's more than engagement. It's less than marriage. If you separated during this time, you would need divorce papers, but there's no sexual activity in that time period. And at this moment, he's having this conversation saying, you need to create some space between you and the world and create some some relationship that will be edifying between you and God. You need to sanctify yourself. How do Christians sanctify themselves? Write that question down or think about it. How do you sanctify yourself? You sanctify yourself through the Holy Spirit clinging to Jesus Christ. You cleave yourself. Cleaving is like sticking to you. It's duct taped or glued onto you. It's stuck to you. It's chasing God, clinging to God, cleaving to him, wading through the process of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying yourself through the work of Jesus Christ. And it's all done by the Holy Spirit because Jesus is up in heaven going, yeah, Holy Spirit, get her done. That's how we sanctify as we cling to Jesus. We thank God for what he's done. We go to Jesus and say, take this yoke and replace it with your yoke because that's light. Holy Spirit, teach me how to live and learn to live for you. You know, when I, uh, I'm celebrating a pretty large number in recovery, when I first came to Camarillo, or I actually was so much living with mama and daddy, uh, they said, in, in recovery, you can't have a relationship for a year. And that's how you focus on your recovery and the things that God is doing. And that's exactly what's happening here. You need to have many days. And this betrothal period was a year of no sexual activity to get renewed. Adultery and little God things in your life create separation between you you and God and you need to close that gap. And some of you need to fast the things that you're struggling with. God wants quality time with you and he wants to be a priority to really renew you. We must learn to submit to him, the one true God, and we must get rid of the things that are making us lose our way. What happens in life is we have these little gods competing with this big God, and it creates chaos and confusion in our daily walk. And it can be as simple as that Starbucks coffee or the movie theater or the cell phone or that child or that relationship that's blocking the full onslaught that God has for us. 
We've lost our way and we've confused what the one true God is and we put other things before him. Kids, wife, job, TV, social media, politics, sex, drugs, rock and roll, friendships, hobbies, you name it. Listen to what Paul writes about renewing. 2 Corinthians 4 at the end of the chapter. He says, we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit and as the grace and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. As you receive this unjustifiable grace, there's a moment of thanksgiving and God wants to present you through Jesus Christ, to himself. He's trying to connect you to God through Jesus. But Jose uh, Gomer saying, this is too hard for me. I want to be right. My kids are hurt. My husband's hurt. But I'm dying inside. And here's what Paul writes. This is why you never give up, Gomer. This is why you never give up. Though your bodies are dying, I can't stay another moment. I want to go out and live in that lustful, sinful life that I was having. I don't want to stay in on Friday night. I'm used to having this guy wine me and dine me and give me money and stuff. And now you're asking me to stay home? I'm dying inside. This addiction, this thing that I'm lusting for is too strong. And there's what Paul writes. Our bodies are dying, and that's when the Spirit is renewing us. When I'm dying, God's saying, yeah, because you're getting renewed in the name of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit of God. For our present troubles, our little gods are small. They won't last very long. Yeah, it might take a year for you to get renewed and right, but that's not long if you live 60, 70, 80, 90 years old or 100 years old. For they will produce a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. What happens if God said, you need to take a year off of all the things that you're doing to get right with me, but the next 30 or 40 years would be amazing. We'd all shake our head, yep, but most of us would say, heck no. No chance. Don't you got a pill today from the pharmaceutical industry? That's what we want. God's not a magic wand type of guy. You know, there's consequences to our sin. We were having this conversation. A group of us pastors were meeting at Dustin's house. On We were talking about it. God loves us. God gives us grace. We've got this reclaiming love, this redeeming love, this renewing love. But he doesn't clean up my messes. And I hate that about God. I've done all these things. I've got, seriously, i got a lot of wreckage in my past. And I've gone a long way from that. But it's still there. Some of the stuff's still part of my life. And God just didn't wave his hand and go, Jeff, you're such a good boy. Yay, Jeffrey. And wave his hand over my problems. He said, Jeff, I'm going to renew you, but I need you to walk through this process with me. You need to trust in my spirit. You need to cleave, cleave yourself or yoke yourself to the word. And now as we go through this, people will see the wake of my glory and grace. And it will look unjustifiable, but it will look beautiful in the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? Verse 4 says... This is a foretelling, foretelling. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince and without sacrifices and sacred pillars and priests or 
or even idols. And here's this, and I just want to spend a second on this. There's a lot that I could say here, but basically, if you are a Jewish person, there are no more altars and no more sacred pillars to do any Jewish work today. In 70 AD, 33, 37 years after Jesus died, the actual temple was destroyed, and there's no more place for Jewish people to have sacrifices. And now they're just stuck with, hopefully, leaning to Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says, verse 13 and 14, you must go to places that are permitted to do sacrifices or do no sacrifices at all. And there's a moment where David has just been confronted by a prophet named Nathaniel. And he writes Psalm 51. And he's just been told that he's a sinner and he's killed somebody. And here's what he writes. This is way before Jesus, way before the sacrifice altar being burned. And here's what it says. You do not, enlighten, you do not delight in sacrifices or I, will, I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you, just, you will not despise. Oh God, you will not reject me because I have this broken spirit, this contrite heart. That's what the Lord loves. He's not looking for your worship. Your opportunity for God comes right now when you have an opportunity to give and serve and love and worship. You come to church and you complain about the music and the song and the message. And the truth is, this is the place that you get to rush to to truly worship God no matter what anybody else is doing. And we've changed church to something else. No, you've got to entertain me. No, you've got to take care of me. No, you've got to listen to me. And the truth is, God is saying, no, you've got to worship me. You've got to honor me. You need to come to the altar and know me more. It's not about you being blessed. Get that out of your mind. That's that stuff that's been preached the last 30 years. Church is about us getting right with God and bringing whatever I have, however good or bad the week is, and dropping myself on the carpet and saying, this is it, Lord. Take it all. I didn't pay for it. I don't deserve it. You just take it, Lord. Because I know your way is going to be far better than my way. Verse 5 says, But afterwards the people return and devote themselves to the Lord, their God and the descendant of David. That's singular. All, Jew, all Israel at some point will go to one king. They're waiting for the Messiah. We know who the Messiah is and he's come and he has risen and he's here to restore us. And that's this last love, a love that restores. In those last days, all of us will be in awe of who God is. It will be in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. Are you in awe of the Lord today? The Lord restores. The Lord is hope. The Lord is love. And the Lord is challenging you to run to him, cling to him, take his yoke. Psalm 51 David writes, restore me to the joy of salvation. Restore me back to the day when I first received you. Restore me to the joy of salvation and make me willing to obey. I paid nothing and you gave everything. I've received everything. 
and I give back not much. Let's bow our heads. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, your grace is enough. Lord, teach us how to understand your grace. Father, we claim you as Lord and Savior. We know, Lord, that you have worked powerfully in the name of Jesus today. And we thank you for the salvation. Lord, we pray that you you spoke so strongly that you've cut away whatever's holding us back. For those that need to be renewed, take that seriously. For those that need the hope of restoring, Lord, it happen right now as we pray and worship you. We love you, King Jesus. Amen.